We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Hey everyone, this is uh, Matt Welsh talking to you. Here there will be no greetings, there will be no comrades and compañeros this time. This is one of our irregular one-on-one conversations with people of interest um, that take place here, who are uh, uh, sitting right across from me. I will introduce at greater length in a moment um, after I try to allure you into the subject by explaining to you why I was not interested in it one month ago, but uh, what uh, flabbergasted me ever since. So um, what happened was, is I was uh, invited to go on the uh, Real Time with uh, Bill Maher a show on HBO. And what they do in advance is, depending on the guests, they come up with a list of subjects. And one of their subjects, because the other guest besides me was a guy named Scott Galloway, is a professor at NYU, kind of an economist and um, big sort of social media person and has a, a podcast and uh, I think a YouTube channel um, where he talks a lot about stuff that issue with uh, men and boys and things like that. Um, and so as part of that, the more people wanted to know, what did I think about the problem with men nowadays? And I hate that question because I don't, you know, think like that. Um, and I, things that have to do with broad categories of, of individuals based on their kind of immutable characteristics and measuring them across that seems to me very deterministic and it's a shortcut to anti-individuality and whatever. I just have never been really interested. And also you're going to get to men's rights a little bit too quickly for my tastes uh, too often. So, but, you know, they invited me on the show. So I went and started uh, poking around doing research on various aspects of it. I ended up at the Bureau of Labor Statistics and oh my garden, people. Um, And I think I've alluded to this in at least one podcast ever since. But there, um, staring me at the face was a set of numbers that I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around because it... It's crazy, uh, or at least I experience it as such. Maybe you'll have a different point of view. But largely speaking, uh, if you compare the number of people who are working in uh, even from the year uh, 2000 to the year 2020 um, across all shares, but especially across men compared to how much they used to work, it's down at every single level, um, except when you measure it up to 2020. And we'll talk about this with Nick Ebersat in a moment. Um up to 2020, the only uh, uh, shares of the population that were working more than, than they were in 2000 were people over 55 years old, uh, which is fascinating. Um, and especially the young people are working, and the young men are working so much less than they used to, is to the point where close to half of uh, men under between the ages of 16 and 24 were not currently employed. Um, which uh, strikes me as crazy. And if you look at the data like that, you think, oh my God, what is happening to the just the normal concept of work ethic in the country? Um, so it was at this like newly, you know, awakened uh, uh, mindset that I got an email uh, from a publicist saying, hey, there's a new edition of a, of a book that came out in 2016 by Nicholas Eversat called Men Without Work. Would you be interested in having on your podcast? Uh, those emails almost never work. Uh, in general, uh, but because I had just seen these numbers and couldn't believe them, and because this book, which came out in 2016 and has been refreshed in the time of COVID, post-pandemic edition, fresh, um, came out, I, I was too fascinated uh, to uh, pass this up. So, Nick, thank you for coming to our studio here in uh, in Chinatown and, and hashing it out with us. Hey, Matt, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm sorry for the uh, the, the long windup, but wanted to go for it. wanted to lure people in go for it. Um, a little bit. I want to know, uh, just kind of as it started, so Nicholas is a, a recipient of the Bradley Prize, a Distinguished uh, Economics Prize from 10 years ago, works for the center-right-ish American Enterprise Institute think tank in Washington. Um, he's a big establishmentarianism, establishmentarian, I should say. He's had a lot of uh, DC uh, uh, and uh, East Coast kind of uh, establishments of uh, note and repute. Um, so uh, came, I want to know, like, as you started getting into this, did you have a similar aha moment when struck by statistics? What was it? When was it? And how did that shape this project and in its original conception? Yeah, well, thank you, Matt. Well, I make what's laughingly passing for my living as a kind of a professor of arithmetic. And so I've spent the last 40 plus years more, more or less uh, finding problems that are hiding in plain sight. Mm-hmm. 
And um, this particular big problem that was hiding in plain sight for decades kind of uh, slapped me in the face back maybe in uh, 2014 when I was listening to a lot of happy talk about how uh, the USA was at uh, full employment or near full employment. And I had just read some public opinion polls saying that half of Americans said we were in a recession. Okay. So how do you put these two things together, right? And so I started pulling on a thread. And after I pulled on the thread a little bit, I saw exactly the same stuff that you did. I said, holy cow, um, we've got almost depression-level employment rates for these guys, the We've got a group called Prime Age Men. This is not my uh, categorization. It's a, you know nerds from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 25 to 54-year-old. It's, I mean, it's fairly uh, understandable why they're called that. Uh, they're having more or less depression level, late depression level work rates, even while we had these supposed um, you know, full employment, uh, unemployment rates. So how do you square these two? You square them because there are like a whole lot of people who are dropping out of the labor force. And because the statistics on employment were devised basically when we were fighting the last war, which was the depression, when it was kind of unimaginable that if you didn't have a job, you wouldn't be looking for one. Yeah, there's the the uh, people don't have a sense of the scale of it. Um, <laughs> and it's kind of shocking to look at. But can you compare the population of people who are measured by the unemployment rate and the population of people who are for the greatest new term I've learned this week, NILFs. NILFs. <laughs> Maybe you could tell NILF. us what a NILF is. Yeah, yeah we don't want to mistake it. No. And compare the size of those populations. N-I-L-F. So this prime age guy group, let's call them the guys, for every guy who is out of work and looking for a job, like Nowsville, like in 2020, 22. There are four guys who are neither working nor looking for work. And this, this is the fastest growing component of men in this age group. And it has been the fastest growing component for almost 60 years now. And so if, if you do something three times as fast as the rest of the population for 60 years, you change the world, right? And so back in the 60s, maybe a little over 3% of these guys were neither working nor looking for work. It's over three and a half times higher than that now. So like 11, uh, 12% something. Yeah. I mean, over 7 million, over like seven, seven and change. So um, why should we care about that on some level? Um, it's a, it's fascinating to, to you know, turn the normal way of talking about employment. When I was uh, the editor of uh, Reason Magazine, um, I started uh, my tenure was from uh, 2008 to 2016, and I was actually pretty interested in the labor force participation rate in in the context of um, okay, are we is this is this a recovery, an economic recovery that we're having? Is it happening fast? Uh, how would you describe it? And there had been a pretty measurable hit on labor force participation, and I was sort of constantly looking back and comparing it. Um, probably in too small of uh, a, a period of time. So sort of looking back in the age of Carter and, and Reagan, which is sort of the end of when women came into the workforce. So those were going up and up. And it wasn't um, it wasn't really rebounding um, at the time that we were looking at it in mid-Obama. So um, does it matter that there are uh, three times as many or three times higher share of dudes who aren't working? There is absolutely nothing good that comes out of this trend. It isn't like the 7 million dropouts are working in community gardens or brushing up on their Schopenhauer or whatever. Uh, what this trend has meant is slower economic growth for the country, wider income and wealth gaps, more dependence on government welfare programs, more pressure on fragile families, less social mobility, less involvement in society, and a lot more deaths of despair. There's just nothing good that comes out of this. One thing that is uh, uh, especially uh, surprising slash worrying um, is that 
uh, and, and correct me where I miss uh, attributing this, um, but this trend is pretty stable since 1965. It that line just keeps going up at a pretty stable rate and seems comparatively impervious to usual business cycles. Matt, you put your finger on something that I think is hugely important. When I started doing my homework on this, uh, I learned that the received wisdom in academic and policy circles was that the retreat from the workforce for guys was mainly due to economic and structural change, you know, to decline of manufacturing, globalization, you know, less demand for less skilled work. I mean, all made sense and that's part of it, but it's not the whole story and it's not even most of the story. This almost straight line of departure from the workforce that you describe, I, I've got a chart in my book which shows this. Um, you know, uh, it's not quite um, geological in nature. It's not quite as regular as, you know, as geology or, uh, or the tides or something. But for a trend involving human beings, it's almost a straight line. And you can't tell when the recessions came and you can't tell when China entered the WTO. Uh, this retreat is so uncannily, weirdly, eerily regular that when I recalculated that line for the latest edition of this book, it, it basically continued from where the line ended in 2016. It's almost the same straight line, almost identical. We've gone th through some stuff since then, right? Like there, there were a few little things. <laughs> I can't remember them all. But. I mean, it, we, had a, we had the longest boom, uh, depending on how you measure it, uh, economic expansion mm -hmm. and stock market boom and, and, uh, and some other things mm -hmm. until it stopped being the longest boom. Mm -hmm. The pandemic, mm -hmm. uh, incredible amounts of, of spending – uh, on, uh, on encouraging people not to work and a mm -hmm. bunch of other things besides, and then the recovery thereof mm -hmm. and the line keeps going here. A thing that people, um, who point to the, you know, the usual, uh, uh explanation of, Hey, this is what happens when you get deindustrialization, um, and, uh, and, you know, the, uh, high school graduates have a more difficult time finding work because you can't get the same manufacturing job and it's being taken by immigrants. That storyline which as you say is part of the story. Um, but that storyline also describes a lot of Western European countries, does it not? Sure. And like what happened, wh where did that split happen? So from the 60s to the present, pretty much in every rich, democratic, never communist country, you've had some drop in workforce participation by guys. But there's no country in the rich world that has had such a steep, radical, and continuing drop as the USA. And we are as close to national twins with Canada as any two big countries are. And even Canada's not the same as us. You know, we're down a lot faster than Canada. That's, uh, that's crazy. Um, uh, and it's also, uh, when you do a comparison between us and other countries, um, you would expect that as countries get richer, people would have would say, "Okay, cool. I don't have to work as much. I can travel more. I can take up knitting. Do whatever you want to do." Um, but we're outliers there among the working too, aren't we? You've read this book. I think you? I have read wow. this book. Yeah, this is scary. It's, it's yeah, strange. for sure. No, absolutely right. And um, much to the surprise of anybody who'd taken an intro course in economics. With higher income levels, uh, the United States did not, let's say, purchase more free time. We're richer than almost any other country. And yet the people in America who care to work, who choose to work, work much longer hours than in Western Europe or in Canada or in Australia or now even in Japan. That's a, uh, uh, I mean, there's... Uh, we used to talk about Japan in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, they were, they were eating our lunch. Uh, mm -hmm. It was 1990. And then, you know, uh, 10, 15 years ago, it was their lost decade and we mm -hmm. want, don't want to do it. But, uh, I mean, is there an argument that we've kind of had a lost decade? Is this part of it too? Or is that kind of a separate uh, line of analysis? Well, I've, I've argued, uh, I argue a little bit in this book, I've argued more elsewhere that we're beset now by a whole number of different unfortunate trends that I call kind of the new misery. Um, th this uh, collapse of work for guys is part of the new misery, 
related to this is a much slower rate of economic growth than we've been used to uh, in our in our post-depression history and almost at any time in U.S. history. If you clock it from the year 2000 to the present, per capita growth in the United States is just a little bit over 1% a year. It's at a pace where, it, if this were to continue, and I hope it doesn't, but if it were to continue, it would take over 60 years to double, which means that you know, uh, in one person's working life, you wouldn't see a doubling of per capita income. That's part of what's kind of like making everything kind of, I think, a little bit sick and crazy now. Um, do you, uh, there's the three different things that are happening at once um, that used to be together and they're not anymore. Maybe you can tease that out, um, sure. which is productivity, which is what you just talked about. Mm -hmm. That's what growth is, productivity, uh, wealth, mm -hmm. and then the amount of working or not working. When did that uncoupling happen and, and, and how, does that, how does that lack of, of acknowledgement of those uh, uh, kind of uh, separating strands affect the way that we think and talk about policy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd say it happened right around the turn of the century. I mean, maybe um, dated to a year or so before, but let's say 2000. That's a nice round number. Um, since 2000, we've seen an explosion of net worth of private wealth in the United States. I mean, despite the, uh, the recent tumble in the markets, uh, we've had an increase of about a hundred trillion with a T dollars of, uh, net worth in the United States since, uh, since the year 2000. I mean, despite the recession worries, um, this amount, this is an extraordinary amount of money. If you divided it up all evenly, which of course it isn't, you'd have, I don't know, a million and a half dollars per notional family of four people. It's, it's a lot of cash now. Uh, so this has been going dynamite, uh, kind of like the good old America that, uh, that some of us grew up in, uh, way back when, uh, the slowdown in economic growth is real and very troubling. And there's no way that you can kind of like, uh, use, uh, inflation indices and other sort of statistical magic to make it go away. It's just a lot slower, more than half, you know, less than half as fast as it had been in the earlier, uh, post-war era. And the, if the, uh, if the new normal for, uh, economic growth, I, th I think the technical term is sucky. Um, <laughs> if, if the new normal is like that, the work rates are really troubling. That's where we see a big decline in work rates even after we take into account population composition, population aging, um, we've mentioned a little bit about the men without work. Uh, even the hours of work are going down uh, to some degree per worker. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, I don't think that you have to be Nostradamus to say that if you have an explosion of wealth for the wealth holders and a decline in work for the workers, you're setting a kind of a stage for a populist uh, phenomenon. Yeah, I was going to say, like, so your book comes out in 2016 um, and is talking about this kind of the elephant in the room that people weren't really tracking and um, hinting at the, uh, you're, you're writing in, in uh, explicitly in places uh, in an almost Protestant fashion about the uh, the problems with idleness and sloth, um, but uh, that, and, you know, saying that there's going to be social pathologies associated with it, it must have been interesting to have that book come out in the political year 2016. And then to see since then so many momentary debates, larger intellectual debates, uh, even one-off incidences of, of shootings with categories of people now that we call incels and and all these types of things. What What's that been like? The, the, the sort of um, uh, uh, kind of confirm your thesis in ways that you were unhappy <laughs> to see? Well, I mean, I did not predict the outcome of the election in sure. 2016. No. Uh, I mean, I didn't try to do anything like that. I mean, this, uh, 
A populist reaction could have taken place four years earlier, four years later, never. You know, it's just that there was a lot of pressure building in this, uh, I think, most unhappy sort of way because of this uh, kind of decoupling of what should be parallel trends in a healthy society that go together when everybody's getting better off. The um, uh, it, There's a difference in, um, in uh, attitudes, behavior, time spent between the population, even the population of, uh, of NILFs mm-hmm. uh, and the population of unemployed. Can you tease that out sure. and, and, and um, perhaps kind of think about uh, in a sense of, of how that could be worrying to people who are looking for pathologies. Yeah, like this, this was one of the most troubling things that I uh, stumbled across in my little, you know, kind of statistical safari. Uh, I was looking- A lot of, lot of charts in this book, people. Yeah, a lot if of charts. If you like charts, you're yeah, in a good place. You found your book. Yeah. Um, uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics asks thousands and thousands and thousands of people, grownups, adults- Every, not necessarily grown-ups, but adults, every year, um, what do you do with your time? And they do these time diaries, these self-reported time diaries, not just for people who are employed, but for people who are unemployed or people who are never worked, aren't working. <clears throat> when you look at the self-reported numbers for the guys, they're really, really striking. So... Um, Within this group of labor force dropouts, let's call, let's call them, uh, about a tenth, maybe a little more than a tenth, are actually full-time students. We're getting ready to get trained and go back to work. They, spend, they report spending their time kind of the way that employed guys do, and so that's not so much of a surprise, right? Because they kind of are disguised employed guys. Uh, but when you look at the rest of the labor force dropouts, N-E-E-T, neither employed nor in education or training. It's kind of spooky because, first of all, they themselves say they don't do civil society appreciably. They don't do worship. They don't do volunteering. They don't do charitable. Uh, They've got a lot of time on their hands, but they say that they don't do much help with other people in the home or even with housework. They do less of those than the most time poor people in the universe who are employed women that age. Uh, They do less than unemployed guys. Um, What they say they do a lot of is watching. Now, we don't know from these, you know, kind of limited surveys what they're watching or what they're watching it on, but they say they're doing about, they're clocking about 2,000 hours a year in front of screens watching stuff and getting out of the house less and less. Uh, I mean, 2,000 hours is kind of like a full-time job, right? Uh, Other surveys done episodically by the Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that before the pandemic, these, the same group of guys said that about, about half of these guys, almost half of these guys said that they were taking pain medication every day. And not necessarily, you know, uh, Percocet or, you know, uh, opioids, but some sort of pain medication every day. So, you know, it's not just, it's not just like call of duty, it's call of duty stoned. And this is not the skill set that's going to get you back into the labor force, but it may be the skill set that puts you on a track towards what we were talking about, the deaths of despair, which have needless to say, unfortunately skyrocketed over this period of time. Um, I would like, there's a, a couple of, uh, of, of tributaries from that, but I want to, before we go too much further, to get into um, some of the striking um, statistical disparities between this population and foreign-born uh, population. Um, it's kind of crazy, and immigration is a big topic. It overlaps with a lot of the stuff, but if you could just sort of drill sure. quickly into um, how different the work uh, participation and other types of uh, reaction or uh, interaction with the economy and with government of the foreign-born population, people come here as a foreigner um, to live in America and with basically native-born Americans who have chosen not to work. So, um, you know, a lot of people come uh, to the United States from abroad. 
Some of them even come here legally. They don't check on that. And the statistical numbers that I'm looking at, you know, they couldn't really do that and get any sort of honest answers, I guess. Uh, it's a very clear picture. No matter what ethnicity you are or what uh, part of the world you come from, if you're an immigrant guy, your workforce participation level rate and your work rate is going to be higher than your native-born counterpart. I mean, just that's true for Latinos, it's true for Asians, true for African Americans, it's true for Anglos. And it's pretty much true no matter what the educational background is. It's especially striking for people who have limited education, for guys who have less than a high school degree. Uh, if you're foreign-born guy who's married and has no high school degree, your workforce participation profile is essentially indistinguishable from a college-educated native-born guy. That's crazy. Well, it's maybe crazy, but it's your income true. Your income level isn't, isn't, isn't nearly the no, same. No, no, income level's way down. But, but your participation is, yeah. you're in there. Yeah. I, I mean- how long have we been having uh, arguments about immigration policy um, uh, in which uh, people, uh, you know, flash the uh, often uh, decontextualized quote from Milton Friedman of, you know, you, you can't, you can have uh, open borders or welfare state, but you can't have both. Um, the decontext is that uh, he was saying this in defense of illegal immigration at the time, but uh, there's this uh, – Behind the people who would quote that uh, quote is the notion that people are coming here because of our welfare state. What you just said does not suggest that. <laughs> well, well, two things. I say two things, and these are both in this book. Um, we had a sort of a natural experiment after the pandemic in uh, with regard to immigration and jobs because – in 2020 and 2021, I can't say anything about this year, but for two years, our immigration inflows were severely interrupted by the pandemic. Um, and it looks like maybe we had, we had a million fewer foreign-born workers in the labor force by the beginning of this year than we would have expected. Um, that did not increase work rates or labor force participation of Americans who are already here. So the thing that the Mickey Kouses of the world, and I can say this because he's a friend, have been saying for a long time, if you reduce immigration or Ann Coulter will say the same thing, um, you know, uh, if you reduce immigration, then you're going to finally bid up wages and you're going to, uh, those people who, uh, who are underemployed, uh, you know, non-college uh, males are going to get back in the workforce. What you were saying explicitly is, that did not happen. It didn't. I mean, if you did it for long enough, maybe, I don't know, but we did it for two years and it didn't happen in those two years. That's for sure. I mean, look at what happened in those two years. We've, we've now got this, uh, incredible peacetime labor shortage. And we also have a drop in the number of people in the workforce, like at least you know, a ballpark. 3 million lower than we would have expected on trend before COVID, and that's leaving out immigration. So it's actually lower, and we've had this big increase in unfilled jobs. So we've seen how this play runs. Is there not a, a restrictionist comeback to this, which is that, hey, look, um, uh, the, the people in America have decided they don't want to do certain work uh, for a certain rate of money and that somehow the bringing in of immigrants, including illegal immigrants, bid down uh, the wages um, to a way that uh, allowed uh, – sort of artificially allowed uh, companies to make a profit or, dis or, or come to their minds that this is the cost of doing business. Um, and so uh, at, therefore, it kind of papered over uh, – Immigration papered over the and, and helped disguise the footprints of the thing that you've detected here. Um, and so um, somehow this uh, we, we will eventually get to the point where those employers will finally start bidding that up again to make it more attractive to people. Is there 
Yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I think I think that's not um, I think that's not an unreasonable argument in the abstract. I mean, if you have a lot more of something, like let's say less skilled labor, it would tend, all other things being equal, to depress the price of unskilled labor. Do notice, though, we've had the up until the big inflation this year, we had the biggest pace of increase in wages, especially for less skilled wages in. in years and years and decades um, in the recovery from the pandemic, and that didn't move the needle at all. One thing I do show in this book, I, I can't tease out the impact of higher and lower uh, levels of social welfare benefits from one state to the next. It's just too statistically complicated for me. But we do have another natural experiment that, that's gone on, which is uh, look at uh, look at labor force participation by immigrants in different states in the United States. Now, uh, immigrant Latino guys by labor force participation are about the hardest working people in America. Um, I have mentioned this uh, before, but um, you and I are old enough to remember when uh, Mexicans were supposed to be lazy. Um, uh, and uh, I I had a, an interview, or I was on a podcast with this guy. Uh, uh, on the Los Libertinos podcast, and he's uh, 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 39 years old. Yeah. He lives in San Antonio. He'd never heard that. Yeah. Uh, so I'm like, there's hope. Yeah. There's hope yet. I can't believe it, but for some reason, we call these people lazy for yeah, a long yeah, time, yeah. and they're working harder than all of yeah, us. Well, yeah, well, well, look at uh, War and Peace. Tolstoy talks about the German soldiers back then being, you know, dreamy cowards. You know, things uh, things change over time. Yeah, that's true. But, but so, uh, but look at, look at California and Texas. So California's got... As close as we get, I mean, maybe Hawaii, but as close as we get to a Europe-style social welfare state in the U.S. and Texas is Texas. Well, what do you think happens with uh, social welfare participation rates and work levels for Latino immigrant guys? They're way lower. Well, the work rates are way lower and the social welfare participation is way higher in California than in Texas. So it's not like people are entirely immune to incentives. It's just that the people who come to the United States from other countries tend to be coming here not for the welfare benefits, they're coming here to work. And you can just see that by the, you know, by the work rates. Uh, let's get to some of the whys, um, and I, I want to come back to the pandemic and how that kind of like uh, um, and, and refreshing this after you had originally wrote this in 2016 and the differences. Um, but uh, even going back to your 2016 kind of thesis, um, when I was uh, mentioning this to um, a nameless friend um, um, uh, whose name might uh, rhyme with uh, Schmancy Bobbleman. Um, <laughs> or I was like, yeah, I'm writing, reading this book called The Man Without Work. And she's like, it's the feminist's fault. <laughs> um, there is it. Let, let me clean that up for her and for and as a question. But there's a there's a school of thought that uh, that's been pretty popular uh, among largely right of center kind of cultural uh, and socioeconomic critics that, um, you know, from even beginning in school, boys are kind of like are, are treated as a problem. Um, that now we're seeing these huge gaps in uh, college attainment, um, that the culture is skewing against them. Um, and, uh, y you know, they're, they're being told uh, constantly and sort of hectored constantly that they are, uh, you know, they're, they're not uh, up to snuff. They're being sort of treated with derision. And this is a logical um, step for them to take is to sort of like, to skip out, to say, okay, you don't like me? Okay, now, now see what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk out. What do you say to that? So I don't get into this in the book exactly because I don't have the numbers for this, but let's play with this a little bit. Okay, so if part of the sexual revolution and the feminist revolution is to make it easier for guys to... Um, have sex outside of regular family life, um, we can see what's happened since the 1960s. There's been this revolution in the family, right? And the group that is, that has the lowest work and, uh, work rates and workforce participation is always the never married guys without kids at home. 
and they were a little sliver in 65, and they are a great big share now. So if you want to connect those dots that way, that's one thing we can see. One of the things which may be related to the revolution in the family, although um, a little harder reached for me, although others may see how did it get there, uh, is a big difference that we see now between guys and girls. I'm talking about grown guys and grown girls. And that is the uh, proportion of people who have a felony conviction in their background. Uh, the ex-con share. Um, one of the things which happened over the last two generations that we, for some reason, haven't paid nearly enough attention to is the explosion of sentencing. Now, we know, we know about the mass incarceration. Everybody knows about mass incarceration. What they don't know is that for every person who's behind bars, there are about 10 people in society who have a felony conviction in their background. And guess what? They're not mostly girls, right? They're, they're overwhelmingly male. And at this point in time, maybe one in seven, maybe one in seven adult guys has a felony conviction in his background as an ex-con. Probably a little bit higher than that for this prime uh, male work group that I've focused on in this book. Uh, it's, this is a big invisible problem. It's something that has happened in conjunction with the sexual revolution and the rise of feminist ideology. I don't know how to connect it exactly, but this is a big part of the male fail. It's a big part of the difference in college. And there's also uh, plenty of policy implications too. I mean, uh, uh, ex-felons uh, uh, are kind of famously and infamously not allowed to vote in a bunch of country uh, states, although that's beginning to change. Florida was the biggest uh, uh, state like that. And, and again, ex, you're done. You've done your probation. You've done everything that you paid your debt to society. But they're also barred from all kinds of different employment categories. Um, uh, it's one of the reasons why part of criminal justice reform is to try to strike some of that from your record, especially if it's a drug-related offense. Um, but uh, licensing is a big problem too, right? We've got Absolutely. so much more licensing on, uh, on jobs than we did uh, uh, 30 years ago. Absolutely. And that is a very common licensing thing. You don't want anyone who's around you know, these, this sensitive population um, that requires this license to be an, an ex-felon too. So All of that, all of the above. And what I find kind of maddening as a numbers nerd is that Uncle Sam in his great wisdom – has decided you're just not going to collect information on this at all. We're not going to have numbers on how, we're not even going to have the head count on this, much less what uh, job uh, profiles or other parts of uh, living standards look like. So you, know, you can't do the evidence-based policy on trying to figure out how you can bring people back into society and back into work and back into families if you don't have the evidence. It's all, it all becomes like this morass of anecdotes. Speaking of evidence problems, um, it points to one of the more difficult ones, which is the role of uh, disability mm. uh, insurance. Uh, maybe uh, characterize um, how much uh, disability payments uh, is uh, is become an income of this population of people, and then maybe talk a little bit about sure. uh, the difficulties of tracking sure. that number and and its importance in the kind of creation of this category. Well, in the, uh, the pre-pandemic times, um, when I wrote the first edition of this book, I found that over half of the male labor force dropouts at that time uh, were reporting getting one or more disability benefit uh, while out of uh, out of employment. That's just a huge number. Yeah, That's and it's e it's even higher if you if you look at uh, household numbers. Uh, about two thirds lived in a household that was getting at least one disability benefit. Um, and you know, money is fungible, so I mean, so that has some sort of bearing on you know decisions that are being made. Uh, here's part of the curiosity. There is Washington spends quite a bit of money these days. I'm, I understand. But they don't spend enough money to have an office somewhere 
where there's a person who can tell you how many individuals in the USA are receiving one or more disability benefit because we have a crazy quilt of different programs that don't talk to each other. We've got the programs run by Social Security Administration. There are a number of different ones there. There's stuff by the veterans. Uh, there's all of the workman's comp stuff. There's all of the state-run programs for disability. And basically no communication anywhere between these things. So if anything, the estimates I came up with might be on the low side for this. Now, as to causation, I cannot prove that our disability uh, archipelago has caused this men without work problem. In fact, I don't think there's anybody who works with statistics at all who would say that they could prove this. They can show the correlation. What we can incontestably argue is that our disability archipelago is financing this. And that, that we can show. Um, uh, so by uh, casing this or, or basing the beginning of the, uh, of the growth in the mid-60s, you also get two big policy change chunks at the time to look at. Uh, one is the Immigration uh, Act of 64, 65, whatever mm -hmm. it was. Um, but the other one is basically the, the umbrella of the Great Society. Mm -hmm. um, and that's long been a conservative critique of the Great Society is that um, we're supposed to – the war on poverty and all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. It didn't work and it also caused new um, habits and pathways towards dependency. Um, uh, people more on the left uh, have been disputing that for a long time too. Um, so uh, what, what is your kind of snap – take on the relationship of that trend line and the, the rollout of great society programs? Well, I mean, you can see what the rollout was like. I mean, the rollout wasn't quite the straight line that the uh, exit from the workforce was for the guys I'm writing about, but it's a very big rollout. The, uh, I mean, our friends in Europe and Canada will say that our welfare state is very stingy. Uh, and by comparison to theirs, it may be. But even relatively modest uh, in disincentives can have funny effects on people. I mean, think of it this way. Uh, take a time machine. I mean, you've got, if you have one around. And just put our social welfare apparatus in it and zip it back to Salem, Massachusetts in, let's say, like uh, 1670. And let's see how many people are going to sign up for all of the programs that we have. I don't know. We, you know I, I can't see what it says on the other side of the machine. But my guess is a whole lot lower proportion because back then the mores were that if you enrolled in such programs or became dependent in these sorts of ways, a lot of people there would have thought that they were going to go to hell and they probably weren't going to do it. So mores and attitudes matter a whole lot. The same sort of thing. If you bring the free vodka wagon to uh, Red Square in Moscow or to Salt Lake City, you're going to have different, uh, you know, kind of like participation rates. <laughs> the mores matter a lot. And um, how much the mores are changed by the, um, by the existence of the programs is something kind of like beyond my pay grade. Uh, one uh, speaking of uh, of uh, government programs, um, the uh, the new intro talking about pandemic yeah. um, uh, aspects of it. You say that we've basically uh, conducted a an experiment uh, to try to pursue the universal basic income policy mm -hmm. that people have been yakking about for a mm -hmm. long time. Andrew Yang probably is the most prominent proponent of it now. But it's and you know it's, I think there's a there's a trial run of that in Stockton, California and some other yeah. places. Uh, talk to us what that experiment has been in the pandemic era and what we've learned from it. Sure. Well, so I think everybody nowadays remembers the $600 and then the $300 uh, pandemic uninsu uh, unemployment insurance benefits. Uh, they, um, they weren't quite UBI, but they were pretty close because they were you, you could have a pretty high income and you could have a job and you could still get the benefits. Yeah. And we had like, we had two, 
even when there were huge numbers of people unemployed, we had like two and a half times uh, that total who were recipients of the benefit. So it was kind of like a, you know, a trainer kit for a UBI. Um, and we have, we, what we've seen since then is this delayed return to the workforce for millions and millions of people, not just because of that program, but because of the, I think the entire, um, social welfare overshoot that occurred during the pandemic. You know, and the, we were, we were on the verge maybe of a global economic collapse. It looked like, it looked when, uh, in like maybe March of 2020, it looked like with the lockdowns, we might be heading towards a second great depression. And so the government pulled out all of the stops, monetary, fiscal, we, re we remember it all. Um, the thing is though, that any sort of social policy, any intervention like that has an unintended consequence. And when you have a ginormous intervention, you have ginormous unintended consequences. The unintended consequence of the fiscal policies of the government transfers of the insurance policies, all of those was actually to increase disposable income in the United States above pre-pandemic trend in 2020 and 2021. We, it's maybe the only national economic crisis in history in which people's disposable income went up. And their savings went up like crazy. And their savings rate doubled because they, because people didn't care to spend all of the money that they were, the borrowed money that they were getting in their pockets. So people put together a, uh, just from the above, uh, above trend, uh, savings rates, they put together a nest egg of over two and a half trillion dollars and there were other wealth effects as well. But so this is part, I think of the reason that we've seen this, uh, broader retreat from the workforce since the pandemic. Um, it's, and it's not just the prime age guys. Now there's also a kind of a new face to the, uh, retreat from the workforce. Yeah, it's uh, us, us olds now are not showing up so great in the stats, right? Like we're like, eh, got some money now, might think about finally retiring. That's what we're seeing. I think we're seeing some, uh, I think we're seeing some premature and maybe unsustainable uh, <laughs> retirement as well. I mean, the, uh, the 55 plus group is the only group in the U.S. workforce from like the mid 90s to the eve of the pandemic that had steadily rising work rates and workforce participation rates. Um, but they got hammered during the, uh, pandemic. And even after the rollout of the vaccines, uh, they haven't come back. They're kind of flailing, uh, distinctly below pre pandemic levels, maybe as much as half of the missing, uh, workers are 55 and older, a lot of 65 and older in there too. Um, one, the thing that initially jumped out at me when I was looking at this stuff before, uh, the, uh, Bill Maher thing was the, or like the, the, the aspect that I was worried about the most, let's yeah. say from these numbers, uh, especially looking at, uh, young people, you know, half of young people used to, to the 16 and 19 would get at least some job. Yeah. And now that's one third and it's just dropping like a yeah. stone. And yes. I'm a, a parent of a 14 year old. Uh, who I, I point out the, the help wanted windows in every yes. single place. And it's like, like, dude, you can make as much money as you want to, if you just figure out how to show up a place on time and do a thing. Um, so anyways, looking at those numbers, the thing that worried me, um, uh, and also as someone who values uh, this aspect is, um, are we seeing change in the work ethic as just sort of a concept, like as an American concept and what might come of that? Well, I'm glad that you mentioned the summer job because we've really seen the death of the summer job in our, in your living memory and my living memory. And I gotta think that's bad, man. I, I, I'm, I think it's really bad. I myself think it's really and bad. We're also being old farts right now, just yeah, to be but, clear about that. But so just to explain part of the old fartdom here. Okay. <laughs> so back when I was a young and getting a summer job was a thing. And part of what this meant was that you got financial independence, you had spending money, 
you might even use it for something crazy like helping out in school or something like that. Or drugs, whatever. Yeah, you could, you could decide. When, you grew well, up in New York. I know what your people yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. So I've heard. And, <laughs> and so part of, part of what you would learn as a team uh, was you're supposed to show up on time. You're supposed to be regular. People are depending upon you. Uh, you know, there is actually, even, even if it's something pretty, you know, with a lot of drudgery in it, there's a certain amount of uh, satisfaction that comes from, uh, you know, from giving a service to other people. And this is something that a generation or two ago, most men and women learned while they were in their teens. Now the first exposure to paid employment for a lot of people isn't until 10 years later. It isn't until they're in their mid twenties, you know, early twenties, mid twenties, late twenties. And they've, you know, they've missed a decade of preparation for what I think would really help them with success in this very important part of life. We talk a lot on this podcast about kind of uh, media and changing mores in, in journalism. We also talk about stuff that might be under the uh, um, kind of sub heading of wokeness or cancel culture and all these terrible words that I'll never want to use again. Um, but like the workplace and kind of moray changes that we're seeing rapidly in various parts. Uh, one uh, concept that I had being an old fart uh, was that one of the differences in journalism is precisely that a lot of the people who are getting into journalism are doing it from my standpoint late. I worked at a college newspaper when I was 18 at this daily paper and had hundreds of bylines before I became, you know, a professional journalist. Um, and now that just those things have been hollowed out and don't exist. Um, I wonder if, um, if all of these things are kind of related, like the, the rise in kind of workplace weird, um, uh, social media swarming and kind of political pressure and, and kind of faddish stuff is because people don't, people didn't have to show up at a warehouse at eight o'clock in the morning and work five days a week at minimum wage as I did at 19. Um, uh, this, they, instead they arrived at, you know, Buzzfeed, um, at fully formed at age, uh, age 25 with lots of opinions about things, but had never, uh, actually had to go through X and Y. Uh, do you think those things are kind of related or am I stretching? Well, uh, in addition to being Nicholas Eberstadt, I'm also, uh, Mr. Mary Eberstadt. And my much better half, Mary Eberstadt, has written about this a lot in her book, uh, Primal Scream, about how the sexual revolution uh, helped to generate identity politics. So I think there's a whole lot of stuff that's uh, – you can't separate uh, what I'm describing from the um, – uh, revolution in the family. You can't separate, I think, some of the stuff you're describing from the revolution in the family. Um, I, uh, uh, you brought up your wife. Uh, I just can't help but uh, bring up the fact that um, everyone related to you is just intrinsically, like, on the page so much more interesting than you are. <laughs> yeah, I bet. It makes life a lot more fun for me, believe me. People... <laughs> Here's here's Nick's grandparents, his grandfathers. Ogden Nash, yeah. sure, why not? Who doesn't have Ogden Nash's one grand? <laughs> and then the other one, uh, Ferdinand Eberstadt, yeah. uh, a yeah. great name, by the yeah. way. Uh, Co-founded the CIA. Yeah. Yeah. And your sister was a Warhol girl. We had a uh, Bob yeah. Colicello on here. On yeah. here, she was as a, as a she was in the yeah. factory in, in the seventies yeah, as yeah. a novelist. Yeah, yeah, and she's a great novelist. She's still cranking them out. Uh, why? Uh, was this an act of rebellion uh, <laughs> to like get into mathematics and economics and oh, uh, wonkery? Uh, I don't know. I, I just thought it was kind of fun. I just, um, <laughs> I mean, I, I obviously have, you know, kind of like poor taste, but I, I thought it was a lot of fun. I just, uh, have you investigated your own family? Like, uh, especially the CIA, you got, you got to like peek under the hood there a little bit, right? Yeah, sure. Okay. So, uh, so Ferdinand Eberstadt, my grandfather, was alive until I was 13 years old. And because I like started kind of like becoming interested in like stuff in the world, like maybe in 11, 12, 13, I did uh, have the opportunity and the privilege to, you know, ask him kid questions about some of this oh, stuff. That's cool. Yeah. And he- So was it OSS or CIA or- uh, CIA. What okay. he, what he, um, he's, he was a kind of a- um, 
uh, technocrat's not the right word, but he was, he was a guy who put things together in the government. So he was part of the war winning effort, trying to figure out how to make the economy produce like a hundred thousand, you know, airplanes a year and stuff. And after that, he helped to organize the uh, defense department and the national security council and the CIA. His, um, his own view, of course, uh, which, uh, was not heeded was that the CIA should be entirely separate from policy, that if it became at all a policy making or, um, implementing organization, it would be corrupted by that. Okay. He, he wanted to have something Sounds that was pretty basically a research organization that would give, uh, you know, I suppose give out the wet work to whomever or whatever, but yeah. you know, uh, but not to be involved in it, uh, themselves. I mean, I think he was onto something. Maybe. How, how was, uh, him and, uh, Ogden Nash, they, they, they yeah. get well, along? <laughs> you know, they, they got, they got along surprisingly well. I mean, they had, uh, they had respect, they had, you know, they were kind of like bullets shooting in the air, you know, that had very little connection with each other's world, but they had kind of like, uh, admiration and respect for each other. There's, uh, your book to me exists in, um, in a category and I'm kind of curious your sense of like how it fits in or how these things inform one another. Yeah. Um, I would put Charles Murray's coming apart, yes. uh, in there. Um, I, I forget the name of Tim Carney's book. I think alienated America yes. or, or, or something along those yep. lines. Certainly JD Vance's yep. hillbilly elegy. There, there seems to be people trying to grapple with bits of this, even Andrew Yang's sort of UBI sure. thing. And, and his, he's obsessed with how, you know, uh, automation is replacing, uh, uh, humans and we have to do something about that. Um, uh, you feel like there's, there's certainly a growing awareness of the topic and sort of how do, how does your piece fit into this puzzle and, and where do you think we're going intellectually with, uh, intellectually slash politically, those things don't have a lot to do with one another. No. Um, certainly not in JD Vance's career. Um, uh, where are we going? Well, so, uh, Charles Murray in this area, as in so many others was, I think a really foresighted pioneer. He, uh, he got and documented the coming apart. He looked basically just at the whiteies so as to keep the argument from having like ethnic, uh, you know, distraction. I understand he's had some history with that. Well, so, so this was, he showed what had happened from, uh, 1960 to 2010, over half a century with, uh, family, religion, work, and other things. I think he got into the mores and stuff. So he was, I think he kind of like, uh, set up the flare. Uh, Tim Carney got wonderful reportage, which puts an actual individual human face on some of the numbers that Charles and I tend to work with. And J.D. Vance lived it. And so, and I mean, I think it's, I wish we had a hundred people in America who were as insightful as J.D. was in that book in all different communities in America, because the United States has become so stratified and to use Charles's phrase, we've got so many of our deciders and describers living in a bubble, unfamiliar with what their fellow Americans are doing that, uh, we kind of need something more than just the statistics that, uh, you know, that I can analyze and kind of, you know, read back to the blind on. Yeah. It's almost, uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting. The, the, uh, the change in both the practice and profession, uh, business, uh, uh, uh organization of journalism, uh, in our lifetimes, how that's exacerbated that, right? Sure. Like, I mean, we used to have, and I'm not saying this out of any sense of nostalgia, but we used to have stronger local newspapers than we do now. It's a well, uh, you know, a sure. remarked upon thing. And, uh, and I think along with that more actual interest in what was happening locally, um, as opposed to everyone fixating on whatever's happening in Washington and organizing their, uh, relationship with the world based on kind of distant, uh, celebrities yeah. uh, on, on some level. And, and one of the, the things that has uh, continually surprised me with the advent of the internet, which I thought and, and, uh, and participated in, uh, would be the, a great kind of democratizing tool of media and would lead to a lot of innovation at the smaller and cheaper levels. 
it just meant that everyone moved to New York. I'm <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> had exactly the same incorrect prediction. I thought that this was going to be, uh, you know, ushering in a, a new golden age. It did usher in a new age, but it wasn't golden. I mean, we've had this other thing going on uh, at the same time, which is kind of, uh, let's call it the death of truth in uh, the public square. And it wasn't just when the professional wrestler became president. Uh, it was, uh, you know, in the academy, you can get fired for saying things that everybody knows is true. In media, I mean, more in your world, you can see how much uh, bias has been replaced by active propagandizing in certain areas. Uh, so it becomes a lot harder to tell stories of ordinary people through the sorts of means that we have. It's preposterous, but it's just, it's kind of like hard to get to the czar. It's hard to get with the information to the czar. Uh, I've uh, recently talked with uh, Chris Steyerwalt from Fox, mm. uh, formerly Fox News, now over at uh, The Bulwark, I think. No, not The Bulwark. Uh, he's at the one that I like, uh, The Dispatch. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Bulwark friends. Um, uh, but, uh, uh, and his book uh, is, uh, is kind of, uh, uh, tries to, untangle what to do about that, both from a, a professional journalistic point of view, but also as a consumption point of view. And he looked back um, at history at various times of when uh, media, the consumption and production of it went through these sort of populist spasms enabled by technology, oftentimes like the birth of radio. I wonder in your uh, egg-headed way, um, if you have looked uh, in the past? I mean, have we gone through things like this before or are we really in this special unprecedented zone where we we don't have some kind of uh, a, a toolkit that we can look back in history and, and see where we reversed course when there was a pathology growing on, on our watch? Well, we had... Um... We had a, um, a first Gilded Age before we got to our second Gilded Age, right? And we had, uh, after, after the Civil War, we had a big explosion of wealth in the 1880s, 1890s, uh, turn of the century. A whole lot of people came from other countries to the United States. We had a big uh, uh, dispersion of income and wealth, big gaps in income and wealth. We had a big um, beginning of a populist uh, upsurge, uh, progressives, and that anti-immigrant. And um, that all kind of like uh, ran its course or, or came to a, a pretty uh, immediate end when we got into uh, World War I. Great. So we just need a big cleansing global conflagration as, as pointless as humanly possible in which we can come in late. And... No, that was that was just one example. <laughs> you asked for history. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Uh, before I let you go, I, I'd be remiss in on on a podcast such as ours, um, which we talk a lot about uh, commies, uh, to not uh, to dip into your expertise on North Korea. Ah, uh, North Korea. Of all things, um, yes. I haven't paid attention to North Korea for a while because we, we don't have a president uh, coming up with comical nicknames of the guy or like having really bad photo ops at the border, all that kind of stuff. Um, is there anything in particular um, with the Russia war in Ukraine that has changed the calculus or the activity or anything involving North Korea? Or is there any new development of particular interest in this horrible, horrible place? Well, it's kind of extraordinary that uh, the the Putin invasion of Ukraine is now relying upon North Korean weapons. Oh God! To I mean, and the the North Korean government, uh, I I would say a little bit out of its uh, usual branding, has kind of slavishly uh, jumped up and down to endorse the uh, stolen territory from uh, the the new republics or the new areas of Russian, you know, Donetsk and, you know, so forth as, uh, as Russian. Um, I think that this is part of the North Korean government's longstanding gaming of big powers. You know, back in the Cold War era, it played a really skillful game. I mean, the place is so little and crazy looking that it's hard to give them credit for when they do things in a kind of a smart, you know, Korean sort of way. Um, they, they played off the Kremlin against China, getting aid from both and, you know, 
allegiance to neither. I suspect that part of this is also gaming the two powers to try to get more aid and uh, and, and play them. Uh, what's going on beneath the surface, of course, is that the North Korean government is racing to produce a nuclear arsenal that it will eventually wish to use to face down the United States in the Korean Peninsula. Uh, get Uncle Sam to blink, push the U.S. out of the Korean Peninsula, and try to fulfill their, to us, extraordinarily improbable ambition of unifying all of Korea under, uh, under the rule of the Kim family. It sounds absolutely preposterous to anybody who is not steeped in North Korean propaganda, and in North Korean propaganda, it is absolutely taken for granted. Wow. Well, Nick Eversat, Nicholas is the byline name. Um, the book is Men Without Work. There's a post-pandemic edition. Um, Templeton Press, right? Yeah, That's Templeton it. Press, right here. Uh, check it out, people, and uh, and uh, and follow. Where do we where do we find you in the world? Well, you, I mean, I, I think Saint Google is pretty good. You yeah. just just look on uh, look on Google for Men Without Work, uh, post-pandemic edition. But where do we find you? Me? Oh, you yes. find find me in. Uh, uh, American Enterprise Institute, AEI.org, and look for the name Eberstadt, and it'll go to my uh, uh, research page. Or they'll just go straight to the CIA, where, yeah. <laughs> which hatched you. Thank you so much for joining us. Matt. Been super fun. Every time you're in New York, you know where to, where to drink now. Yeah, thank you so much. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Heart.